Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it's written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. When you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And When they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. I think there are few figures in the Bible, for sure connected with the Christmas story, as mysterious as these guys in Matthew chapter 2. It's kind of fascinated us. This is one of the iconic stories of the Christmas season, I think in particular with some of the mystery surrounding them and uncertainty about their their uh, who they are and why they're there and how they got there we know nothing else about them before this time they never show up again after this so they really do hold our imagination of course history has described these men in a variety of ways and some of these traditions have found their way into the church. This is one of the places where pastors love to pick on Christmas. Have you ever noticed this? Anybody familiar with this trend among us? That we like to pick on Christmas? This is one of the areas where we do that. The wise men. First of all, how many wise men were there? You know... You don't want to answer, do you? You're worried. Oh, no, he's not baiting me into that. The answer is we don't know. And I know traditionally there are three, right? We got three gifts. Surely there were three wise men, right? No, the, again, the Bible doesn't say. Could there have been? Maybe. The word wise men is just in the plural. All we know is there was more than one. That's all we know. History first describes them as kings in the third century. It appears that maybe there was some confusion with a particular prophetic pronouncement about kings bringing their presence 
to the Son of God or the Messiah. And so it was assumed that, well, here they are, all right? These guys present gifts, so these must be three kings. By the time we get to the 8th century, these guys actually have names. By the time we get to the 12th century, it is believed each one of these kings were a descendant of one of the three sons of Noah. So one of them traditionally is always depicted as coming from Ethiopia. And so the traditional depiction of the kings in, say, a nativity, very often is going to have one of them that is of African descent. And of course, a lot of these ideas then are solidified because in the 1850s, we have a carol that's called, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Again, we don't know all that stuff about these guys. We know next to nothing about them. We can, we can bet that they were, they were from Persia. And these guys were not kings. They were of a priestly, uh, scholarly class. These guys were seriously wealthy. Very intelligent. Quite powerful. In fact, if our location is right of where they came from, it could be at times their power and influence rivaled that of the king himself. Because these guys had knowledge. These guys could read the stars in the sky. And so to many, it seemed like they even had mystical, magical powers. And so sometimes we even call them what? Magi, right? possible these guys go all the way back to the time of Daniel. You know, Daniel is three friends, right? Fiery furnace, that first group of Jews that were taken into exile from uh, Jerusalem and went to Babylon, and, and Daniel lived out the rest of his days, many, many, many decades there in Babylon, never to return back to his home of Jerusalem, but a man of faith, a man of the Old Testament Scripture. And it is believed that Daniel had a profound impact on a group of men called the wise men. And that maybe it was from Daniel that these guys became students of the Old Testament. And so then we fast forward to this time period, the time of the birth of Christ. And as soon as they see in the night sky that they knew so well, as soon as they see a star that had never been there before, that doesn't belong where it is, they start a trip. And they head east. And so Matthew presents to us, in chapter 2, the story of the wise men. Again, he's the only guy that references them. They're not, they're not referenced in the book of Luke. They're referenced nowhere else, quite frankly. All we know about them is found right here. But Matthew gives, really gives these guys, uh, next to Jesus, these are the most in- important characters in the story, in a sense. Because Matthew uses the wise men as a way to continue to promote what is his key idea in these first two chapters. And that is that Jesus, this child who has been born, is the king. He is the rightful heir. He is the fulfillment of the promise. A forever king to sit on a forever throne who will rule a forever kingdom. And what the wise men do, their entire visit... Their connection with Herod then draws in another important character so that with the visit of the wise men, we have depicted for us that that Jesus is the true 
king over that usurper Herod. And that in fact, he's not just some regional local king. He's a global king. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow to him. And so these three pagan wise men coming from the east, or coming from this area probably of Persia then provide us with a profound picture of the nature of the kingship of Christ. Now this is what we've been looking at this Christmas season. Matthew's depiction of the kingship of Jesus. We've noted that really what the Christmas story is the promise of a king. And we've noted two realities of this king. The nature in which he will uh, serve. Christmas promises us a king who reigns. And then we noted last week a king who saves. That great pronouncement that the angel makes to Joseph. It says, you don't have to divorce Mary, right? He's, she's going to give birth to a son. It's of the Holy Spirit and he's, she's going to give birth then to a child and you will name him Jesus for he will save the people from their sins. And then he goes on to give that great connection then to the prophetic statement of the Old Testament that he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so in both of those statements, Matthew provides to us the manner in which Jesus would be the Savior. It would be God in the flesh who'd come and save us. This morning we look at number three. The third feature of the kingship of Jesus is that the Christmas story promises us a king who shepherds. A king who shepherds. Now let's take a look at this story again, beginning in verse 1. We're going to note some important elements along the way. So we think carefully about the words that are given to us. Make sure that we kind of separate tradition from what's actually in the text. Uh, you know, mythical statements about who this, these guys may be and what they did uh, and what actually transpired. Verse 1. So it gives us the, kind of the introduction verse. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, I want you to note that phrase. Not right when Jesus was born. After Jesus was born. In fact, the phrase could even be rendered sometime after Jesus was born. So this is one of the areas where, you know, a lot of folks for sure out in the world get this wrong. Uh, Jesus, uh, though he was born, you know, was laid in the manger and those shepherds visited him on the night of his birth. The wise men did not show up there. They come much later. I've never walked from Persia to Jerusalem, then to Bethlehem. But my guess is that takes a while. So, this, this is a journey they begin, I believe, the night Jesus is born. I think that is when the star appears, and I think that's when they begin to get this journey going. In fact, the rest of the text, did you notice when we read it? How is Jesus referred to? He's never referred to by name again in chapter 2, by the way. Matthew never uses the name Jesus again, which I find striking since chapter 1 said, and you shall call his name Jesus. But they never use the name Jesus after verse 1 again. Instead, he only calls him the young child. By the way, another little tidbit and trivia. Never is Mary mentioned first. It is always the young child and his mother Mary. Jesus gets top billing. Mary's mentioned second, and who's not mentioned at all? 
Joseph, all right? Joseph. He, yeah, he's not referenced in connection at any point. But the, the, the significance, though, of the reference, though there could be many, one in particular, the word child in the Greek is not the same as the word for baby or infant. In fact, it is a word used for like the toddler age. So we know that based on what Herod does, Herod's going to have all children in Bethlehem in the region, all males, 22 uh, years old and younger, he's going to have all of them killed. We know that Jesus was probably about two years old. So it is, it is at this point, and we also know based on what we just read, Joseph and Mary have settled in Bethlehem for a little while. All right? So they haven't been living for two years in a barnyard. Okay? They have found a house. The text says they found a house. Because that's where the wise men show up to. So it's sometime after the birth, which by the way, traditionally, the celebration of say, uh, the, the wise men day or three kings day in the liturgy of the church comes after Christmas. In fact, it, all, it comes then into the new year. And that is why, traditionally, because this event does not happen at the birth of Christ. Though Matthew clearly recognizes all of this is about the birth of Jesus and what he means. All right. So, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, in the days of Herod, you kind of need background music to that, right? Dun, 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 right? That's kind of what you need in the back when you hear Herod. I don't know if you noticed, but Herod's the bad guy. Not, not only is he obviously the kind of the epitome of evil in the story. In fact, I would argue that Herod's function in chapter 2 serves as a New Testament form of Pharaoh. He's like Pharaoh, in a sense. And you see, by the way, some allusions to Exodus, uh, when, when we'll see that later in some of the other texts when we get to them next Sunday morning. Herod is the first in a dynasty of kings. This, by the way, is not the same Herod as the Herod that shows up in Jesus' crucifixion. This Herod dies about 4 B.C. So maybe that's another issue that might need to be addressed in your own minds and hearts. Jesus was not born year zero or year one, all right? Because Herod, Herod was already dead, all right? So that's a calendar problem, and uh, the way they figured it is why all that worked out. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Just to know that is the case, Jesus was probably then not crucified in 33 A.D., but probably the late 20s A.D. Nonetheless, all right, Herod the Great, he's the guy in charge of Judea. He's of the lineage of Esau. So, not only is he not of the tribe of Judah, so he's not from David, he's not even a Jew. He's not even of the promised child. So he is for sure a usurper. He used violence and political savvy to get an appointment by Caesar to be king of Judea. He did a lot of great building programs. He built the temple. You can still see the ruins of it today. You know how he built all these great and majestic spots around Judea? He taxed everybody for it, all right? The other thing he did was he killed a lot of people. Herod was a violent, paranoid man. He was always worried somebody was trying to take his throne. And so with that, he had several sons killed. He had two wives killed. He had a brother-in-law who was the high priest at the time, had him killed. 
He even showed up to the funeral and pretended to cry about it. Five days before his own death, which he died a horrible death of a horrible disease, all right? five days before his own death, he had another son executed. At the same time, he had about a dozen of the most respected men in Jerusalem arrested, put in prison, and here's what he said. That because he knew no one in Jerusalem would cry for him when he died, he wanted them to execute those men on the day he died so that there would still be weeping in Jerusalem. Now, again, you know, we tend, we tend to sanitize these Christmas stories. But this, this, this was one of the most violent men. He would have, if he had the power, he would have killed a lot more. I found an interesting quote from Caesar Augustus himself about Herod. Here's what he said. By the way, there's a play on words in the Latin. It doesn't show up in the English, but it, it was in the Latin. I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. That's what Caesar Augustus says. I'd ra- the pigs are treated better than the sons. Now, Herod, Herod for sure shows up as an important figure. He is the earthly king, but he is not the king. He's the one against against whom Jesus will be contrasted, right? I mean, he's, he's the foil, so to speak. This is the one that thinks he's in charge, that thinks he has power, but now there's going to be this little baby that's going to be born, and it's going to throw Herod into a tizzy. In fact, as we'll see in a later story, his violence and anger is going to be demonstrated in a horrific way. As he has all male children in the city of Bethlehem and the surrounding region, who are two years old and younger, put to death. Hoping that this kind of nuclear option, so to speak, all right, to use a modern-day phrase in an ancient setting, would take care of his king problem. Here's another interesting little tidbit. If you read all the Christmas stories in Matthew, read them all in Luke, you know what you find out? Every other person in these stories gets some kind of dream from God, vision from God, or visit from an angel. Matthew talks about Joseph. We know Luke talks about Mary, John the Baptist's parents, the shepherds. Matthew also tells us about pagan wise men. These guys are pagan, by the way. Pagan wise men. All these folks, all these characters, get some kind of vision or announcement directly from God, except for Herod. Herod's the only character in the Christmas story that doesn't get some kind of direct revelation from God. So clearly he stands apart. So this is the guy who is in charge, and then it says, Behold, wise men from the east come to Jerusalem. So they make their way to Jerusalem, and here's what they say when they come in. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And then two incredibly important statements. We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now we need to deal with a few things. First of all, let's deal with the whole three thing. In fact, if you go on to the next verse, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The word troubled doesn't do justice to the word. The word means terrified. Terrified. In other words, it's a word that talks about deep anxiety and worry. 
he was deeply terrified at what had transpired. And that says, in all Jerusalem with him. Now let me ask you, if you had three pagan guys on camels, ride into town, start asking in a city like Jerusalem, where is the king of the Jews who's been born, what do you think the reaction is going to be? These guys are nuts. They're crazy, right? I mean, Herod probably would have had them executed. That's my guess. There's no way there's only three people. There's no way. Let's add to this. Wise men were seriously wealthy. Think about the wealthy people in our country. How do they travel? With an entourage, right? We can also connect it like this. Though these men were not kings, they were definitely influential Do you all remember, did you notice right after Hurricane Florence, did anybody here notice that the president came to visit? Did anybody know that? Did you all know that? Yeah. Did every person on every road in New Bern know that? Yeah. Yes, because I was at every road he was going down right before he went down it. I'm not kidding. I saw him. I mean, I didn't see him, but I mean, I I saw the train, all right, twice, I saw it twice, everywhere I was going, all right? I didn't know, I didn't know but that's, that's, where, that's, that's where I ended up, okay? So I, I did get a front row seat twice. Because was there one car? No, I think every suburban in eastern North Carolina, or whatever it was, all right? I think all of them, it was all of them, all right? They even had empty buses driving along. There were ambulances. I mean, it was an event. This is what happened when these guys showed up to Jerusalem. It is estimated that as many as 100 or 120 people were with them. If there were only three wise men, these guys were seriously stocked. This was not some little kind of visit from some curious kind of, you know, uh, odd ducks from the east. What do you think when wise men, the scholarly priestly class from another kingdom, shows up asking in your city. And the way the text reads, here's what I think they're doing. I think they're coming into Jerusalem, entourage and everything, assuming that everybody in the city knows about this. Where is the king of the Jews? Where is this one who's been born? And they're all probably looking around thinking, what are these guys talking about? Do you mean Herod? (laughs) My guess is they were just as surprised to hear about this as these wise men were to hear that nobody knew about it. But I think what's most disturbing is the reference. We've seen his star. We've come to not pay tribute, not respect. It doesn't even say honor, does it? We have come to submit ourselves to him, to worship him. Again, these guys knew the stars, and they knew there was a star that popped up that didn't belong. Just to give you my two cents worth of what I think this is, I don't think this is a natural phenomenon at all. I think this is God causing his Shekinah glory to shine when and where he wants. I don't think it's a comet. I don't think it's another star already in existence. Because these guys knew the stars. This thing did not belong. I also think it did not shine continuously. Because where do they show up? They show up in Jerusalem. Then it shows up again and it takes them to Bethlehem. And then it says it stands over the house. How low does that star have to be? Right? 
I mean, if I look up now, I could think in my grandiose vision of myself, all these stars are standing over my house, right? One way or another, depending on your perspective, all of them are. The moon is standing over my house. Wow, I must be great, all right? So, I mean, anybody could say that. How low was this thing? Nope, this was God causing his glory to shine in order to direct the steps of these wise men. They knew this was a divine sign. This indicated a king, not just any king, but a divine king, a God-appointed king. We've come to worship him. This is why all of Jerusalem and Herod, this is why they were terrified. Is this prelude to a regime change? Are these guys coming as part of a coup? Is there something else going on? Are they coming to develop a political alliance? This is, I'm sure, you're talking about a guy who had his own wives executed. Alright? He's prone to paranoia. Psychosis. Narcissism. I mean, this is a veritable, you know, goody bag of all psychotic behaviors available. He had them all. In fact, he knows something's up, doesn't he? Because then what does he do? Immediately after this, he says, And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, notice what he didn't call for. He didn't ring down to the local temple and say, Hey, can you guys send me the priest that's on call? It says he gathered all the chief priests and scribes. All of them. We've got to get to the bottom of this thing. And notice that, notice that Herod doesn't have any idea about the Bible, does he? He doesn't know about this prophecy. Isn't that, isn't that such a distinction from David? Do you remember what David said about the Old Testament law? Oh, how I love thy law. David said, I meditate on it day and night. The kings were supposed to know the word, though many of them didn't. For sure, Herod doesn't know it. But he knows there's something in there about it, right? So let's get all of our smarty pants guys together and we'll see if they can tell me what's going on. Sure enough, they don't even have to go searching, right? The, 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 the scribes and the priests, they don't say, well, Herod, give us a few days. We'll go pull out some scrolls and see what we can find, all right? Nope, they come right out with it. So they said to him, when, they, when he inquired, where was the Christ to be born? They said to him, Bethlehem. Bethlehem. There's no doubt about it. It's the city of David. Yeah, that's where he's going to be born, because that's what the prophet said. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. So Bethlehem was a little kind of know-nothing town. Its only claim to fame was the fact that it was the city of David. But then it says, For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So this is the point, by the way, that Matthew's drawing to. The point that he's trying to make is with this particular reference. That's what Matthew does in these first two chapters. The point of each given text is always the text he references that he says is a fulfillment of something that has gone on, right? So he references the text at the end of chapter 1 that we saw last week. He does the same thing here. The point of the text is 
is drawing our attention to what is the prophetic pronouncement about who this king will be. Not only where the king will come from, the king will come from Bethlehem. But who this king will be. And I love the way this language is put. Is that that the way you'd expect this phrase? For out of you shall come a ruler who shepherds? Do these two things normally go together? Do you normally think of the great mighty warrior kings of the ancient world? Do you normally think of them as shepherds? No, the ancient world didn't either, by the way. This probably was one of those disappointments of Christmas that I mentioned last week. What did they want? What would they have been looking for? If you'd used the phrase, born here was a ruler who would be a mighty warrior, right? Remember the first king that Israel chose for themselves? They chose the tall, strong, muscular, fine-looking man, right? That's who they chose, right? Saul, that's who they decided they wanted. The guy who stood ahead, head and shoulders above everybody else. The guy who's charismatic, the guy who had leadership, the guy who just screamed ruler, warrior. See, I think when Jesus enters into his earthly ministry and starts describing himself as the one who fulfills the prophecies about the Old Testament Messiah, I think this is why the scribes kind of looked at him and thought, this guy's crazy. He doesn't look like a warrior. What's interesting, though, is the Old Testament often describes God as a shepherd, right? In fact, the shepherding image is important. The greatest king of Israel was a shepherd boy. David always saw himself, by the way, in those terms. There are psalms that regularly reference to his his own job description as being that of a shepherd. We know that God is going to judge Israel because her shepherds, meaning her prophets, her priests, and her kings, fail to take care of the sheep. In fact, God tells them in Ezekiel chapter 34, the only thing they do is they're, they're, they're eating the sheep as if they were wolves. They're devouring them. And God chastises Israel because they, they are not, they're not shepherding his people, his flock. And so in Ezekiel 34, God makes a promise. He says, I will then come and be their shepherd. In fact, he makes a very specific statement. He says in verse 23, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Again, the folks in the first century, I don't think this is what they were looking for. In fact, the shepherds of the first century, do you know they were considered unclean? Which is somewhat ironic, because the shepherds, especially the ones who were outside of Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born, you know what kind of sheep they were tending to? The sheep that were were going to be used in the sacrifices. So it's ironic, these guys who are tending to the sheep who were to be pure, spotless, without blemish, these that were going to be offered in sacrifice for the sins of the people, these very men were themselves considered unclean. They were lower class, common laborers. It was not a kingly royal image. But as we've already seen, the Bible presents to us a very different picture of the kingship of Jesus. 
Oh yes, he is a king who reigns. And this text, I think, very well then puts the image in its right place. He is a ruler who will then shepherd. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd cares for the flock. A shepherd provides for the flock. Can anybody think of an Old Testament passage that talks about God and shepherd? It's right on the tip of my tongue. Anybody? Anybody think of anything, right? Psalm 23, right? The whole psalm lays out for us this image. And, and we often think of that as like a sweet little psalm, don't we? It kind, of, it kind of brings up these kind of images of him, you know, lovingly tending to sheep. But if you go and read it, you'll notice there's some other features to it as well. In fact, let, let's think about it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He does what? What's the next line? He, he makes me lie down. He makes me lie down. Think about another part of the text. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff beat my tail when I need it. Is that what it says? Some of you are now thinking, did he really just say beat my tail? Did he just said it twice? Yeah, I did. I did it. I mean, we think of rod and staff. Do you always think, does, does that conjure up images of comfort? Now, granted, part of what a shepherd may would have done with a rod and staff, he would have beat away animals, right? Other kinds of enemies. But do you think that's the only thing he used that rod on? Henri Sheep. What about that staff? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what could that staff have been used to do? To pull them out of danger? Yes. And to yank them back into line when they get out of it. In other words, you see this great psalm, and we tend to think of it only in kind of its comforting language, which undoubtedly it is. Yes, God is a great provider. God is one who cares. The shepherd cares for his sheep, but part of that caring is recognizing that the sheep are sheep. And sheep can't do anything for themselves. In fact, why does he have to make them lie down in green pastures and beside still waters? Because sheep with their big furry selves, if they got too much into rushing waters, their fur gets heavy with the water, they get in the water, and I don't know about you, but I've never known a sheep to be really great swimmers. I mean, I could be wrong here, alright? Could be. I don't think so. so they, it's easy for them to drown. And In other words, if you, is there any animal out there whose greatest threat is a sheep? Is there? Is there an animal out there right now thinking, wow, hope sheep don't show up because they terrify me. <laughs> I don't think so. So these, you know, sheep don't inspire. You know, no one, no one, you know, is, there, is there a college out there that's known as the mighty sheep? I mean, there might be, I don't know, but it doesn't inspire. I mean, we've got a school that's known as, you know, for turtles, but we don't have any that are known for being sheep. I, it's odd, Right? Because sheep are known for needing the shepherd to survive. And they need the shepherd sometimes to survive themselves. The imagery here is profound. 
because it puts into the squarely in context what it is that we need, just like last week's did. We need a Savior who saves us from our sins. Do we need a king? Yes, but what kind of king? We need a shepherd who rules. We need a ruler who is benevolent and loving and kind and full of grace, one who can provide, one who in fact can find the green pastures and, and help us lie down beside the still waters, and one who cares for us in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, but one who also is not afraid to use the rod and the staff when the sheep get out of line. A ruler who will indeed shepherd us. Because what does that say? That, that means that we need it, right? I know you all probably didn't come on a Sunday morning, especially the Sunday before Christmas, just to be, to be offended. <laughs> Apparently you didn't know what church you were coming to. All right, but... This means we're in no position to rule our own lives. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not skilled enough. I don't have enough education. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough ability. I don't have enough natural tools to operate my life. And neither do you. We desperately need a shepherd. We need one who will rule us. This reminds us, church, when we talk about our relationship with Jesus, the relationship of sheep to shepherd, this is not a peer-to-peer relationship, right? Jesus doesn't call together the sheep and call a council together and ask where they want to go today. Well, okay, what kind of pasture do you want to go to today? All right, this also destroys the notion of Jesus is like my best friend, traveling companion, and contemporary Christian music's view of Jesus as my boyfriend, all right? So it, it, it throws that out of the, out of the window as well. Who's in charge of the flock? Jesus and some of the other sheep? Or the, the shepherd. Shepherd rules. And Jesus himself said it in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. And the sheep know my voice. It's also in that context he makes one of the great promises of Scripture. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. See, while we have a shepherd who rules us, and in fact we are to live in submission to this king, in submission to this ruler, life for the sheep is best lived when lived into submission to the shepherd who knows how to shepherd the flock. If we decide to live our own lives, to try and find our own pasture, try and find our own still waters, then what do we find ourselves? We only find ourselves dealing with more sin, more hurt, more pain, more rebellion, and everything that's broken in this world. Life best lived is lived, you ready for this? In submission to Jesus as our shepherd. So that's the question for the Christmas season. This is what the text says. This is the means by which This king rules. He rules like a shepherd. What is the nature of my relationship then to this shepherd? Well, first, do I have one? And that would be my question to anybody here. Is he, in fact, your shepherd? Because he's not everybody's. I mean, he said, my sheep know my voice. In other words, you've got to be one of his sheep to be under him as your shepherd. Now, the good news is you can be. That, that means confessing you are a sinner, believing Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, asking God to save you based on what this shepherd and this shepherd alone has done for you. And that is to yield his life and sacrifice, to bear God's wrath for sin 
He never committed so that we might be granted his righteousness. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, that's where it begins. I'd make an appeal here to anybody who doesn't know Christ. I'll be right down front. If you'd like to know more about what this means, I'd love to tell you more about what it means to trust Christ as your Savior. But then for the rest of us, those you'd say, yes, I'm a believer. Yes, I'm part of the flock. I've, I've gone through the door that is Jesus. I'm, I'm in the pen, all right? Yes, he is my shepherd. But let me ask you, are you living under the authority of this good shepherd? Is your life one that you'd say is consistent with one in submission to the shepherd? Life is best lived when lived in submission to him. Is that how you're living your life? As we have this time of response, if you would like to come, you want to kneel here and pray, if you'd like me to pray with you, if there's something specific going on in your life and you're struggling with these things and you just want somebody to come alongside of you, I'd love to do that as well. How will, you, how will you respond to his word today? Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, this time will be open to you as we sing. Father God, we do thank you for gathering your people. We are grateful for the promise of your word, for the promise of the Christmas season. That you've provided us a king, a king who reigns, a king who saves, a king who shepherds. So Father, now may we find ourselves coming under your word. May your spirit bring it to bear on our lives May we deal with the hard question, are we living in submission to our ruler who is our shepherd? So we pray, Father, that you would have your way in us, be glorified through work that is accomplished by your spirit. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.